Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Jennifer Mace, and guest star Ryan Boyd. On this episode, we're discussing Clive Barker's short story Jacqueline S. Her Will and Testament, both the book and movie versions of Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer, and the Hannibal fanfic Where All Ladders Start by Emin Jeer. And welcome to episode 16, a bump in the night and not the sexy kind. While Macy and I could probably manage to blather about anything for a solid hour, neither of us are experts in today's topic, so we've called in someone who is. One of my very, very best friends in the whole world, their face is so good at stupid, Ryan Boyd of the very excellent horror podcast Rank and Vile. Let's all introduce ourselves. Uh, I'm Alex, the vampire one. I'm Macy, the Kelpie one. Uh, and I'm Ryan, the Chupacabra one. Oh, you changed your answer. I was going to go with werewolf, but then I decided, you know what? B-side yes. monster. Sure. sure. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Uh, we are two redheaded fantasy authors who miss Freya very much. It's true. Uh, she's on vacation, but she's coming back. Uh, so two redheaded, redheaded fantasy authors and a swamp goblin named Ryan. <laughs> yeah, that's, I was going to say like an oily, an oily haired horror author. Oh. Like, I, I don't, it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite fit. Oh, it's fine. We'll, we'll, we embrace your swamp goblinness, but not like, Physically, because slime. I'll embrace you physically, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm basically, I'm wearing a sort of Macy uh, meat suit on the podcast today, where it's like, well, Macy's not here, but we did scrape this thing off the floor in an alley before the show, so <laughs> hopefully yes, that's good. Freya and so, well, oh god, wait, am I? You are Freya. Oh, wait, so I'm an expert on yes. horror? Oh my god. Well, that's... we should te- we should finish off the, the scripty bit. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Because today we're talking about horror, uh, gore and guts and crime. But before we get into that, what are we reading, fellow serpents? Well, I am reading some dignified items of literature myself. Are you? I am. Are you though? I am. I am. I, I have. Mm-hmm. Listen, I have. It's not my fault. What happened? Tell tell our darling listeners <laughs> what happened. I, I, I made a mistake. Mistakes were made. Um, I might have watched mm-hmm. like like eight episodes of Black Sails in the past two weeks and then I fell down the Alex hole of reading everything and I'm gonna call it the Alex hole because you founded this. Please don't call it the Alex hole, maybe. Oh, God, that's worse. <laughs> oh, now we, now we have to. Oh, maybe. Don't maybe call not. it the Alex that's... hole. It's a little bit. It's a little bit. Okay. I, I have begun a pattern of behavior which is typical of our uh, most American of snakes. Yeah, there you go. There we go. I, oh God, I've read so much Black Sails fanfic, but I did also read an actual book-shaped object, sort of. I read my darling agent sibling Emily's novella, Silver in the Wood, which is full of tree spirits and ghosts and boys kissing other boys and monsters. Mm, Very good. And I read Consider the Fork, A History of How We Cook and Eat by B. Wilson, which is amazing. I can't even explain it. Just go Google it right now or click on it in the show notes because the scribes will undoubtedly add it there. I also read The Henchman of Zenda by KJ Charles. Finally got around to that one. And I just started uh, Spectred Isle. Is it Spectred Isle or Spectred Isle or who knows? Also by KJ Charles. And of course, I'm still on my uh, Dragon Age Inquisition fanfic kick 
But plot twist, uh, the cool part is that I, I have now actually played some Dragon Age Inquisition since the last time we recorded, and I will be playing some next week at Ryan's place when I go to visit them. Very nice. Yeah, you will. So lately, uh, I've been uh, reading a bunch of stuff. One of them is uh, Lost Country by William Gay, who is a uh, Southern, or was a Southern Gothic uh, fiction guy. Um, he, uh, the problem with reading anything Southern Gothic post Flannery O'Connor is you sort of judge everybody for not literally just being Flannery O'Connor. Mm, sure. Um, so, I mean, but it, it is really good. And I, so I'm reading that. I just finished um, Space Opera by Catherine Valente. It was... Um, very good, but also at many points, I, it was a bit of a slog to get through because it was sort of like, I don't know, like, I, I like asides and I like the sort of, um, it's a lot of Douglas words. Adams, like, it's a lot of words. And like, sometimes I fucking loved space opera. I have evangelized about space opera before, but yes, sometimes like I did have to mm-hmm. stop and read a sentence aloud a couple times to understand what was I just, being communicated. I, I just had the, the minor bone to pick about, to pick about the banjos in England. I will fight you. Oh. I will fight you. That's not that's, that's not one of my stereotypes. <laughs> Sit down. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I look, I'm nothing but not petty. Right, exactly. I, well, and honestly, with space opera, I think it's plot-wise, like, not everything has to be very plot-heavy, obviously, mm-hmm. but I, I feel like sort of you could fit the plot of space opera on probably one page. I would have liked a little and... a little more uh, plot to it as well. But uh, we're, mm. we're not talking about space opera or space operas today. We're talking about horror, so yeah. shall we uh, move along and start the episode proper, lady, lady and gentle person, fellow gentle person? <laughs> As- I- associated secret. <laughs> yes, sure. Uh, then, as the uh, yeah. as the the token sis on this podcast today, I will start us off with a question, as is my habit. Hey, Ryan. That's that's what cis people do a lot. That's that, true. That's true. That's true. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Macy. What's horror? Well, so I, I feel like what's horror is like a question that I, I you know that thing when somebody asks you, hey, what kind of music do you like? And every band you have ever listened oh, to just. You forget everything and you're like, Oompa music? Cause it's the yeah. first word that comes to mind and you're like, that sounds like a music. Um, the way that I think of horror is mostly that it's a sort of like sock puppet show about death because necessarily I feel like, um, I mean, obviously like, and, and the problem is anything that you could sort of name about horror as a, as a genre. I feel like frequently it's like, well, okay, so there's got to be a constant menace. Like, yeah, there are other genres that have that. Oh, okay. A uh, grotesque creatures. Like, yeah, Dune has that. Uh, a feeling of pursuit by malevolent forces? And really, I think horror is a lot like pornography in that you know it when you see it. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's pretty much, yeah. I know that one of the things we've talked about on the podcast before that Alex brought up actually really early on was uh, the concept of reading something to have a particular emotional experience. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I really like reading things that give me the feelings that I want to feel. And I wonder if that's something that's characteristic of horror as well, is that it has a particular set of feelings of emotional or physical reactions. Well, yeah, I I think uh, I'm so I feel like constitutionally for me, like horror is so I I, I think the way that I got into horror is that when I was a kid. um, So, you know, how when you're a kid, everything is terrifying and out to get you and you're terrified all the time and everything just has teeth and fingernails and it's terrible. Uh, and then nothing changes, yep. and then eventually you die. Um, but when I was a kid, you know, horror became this <laughs> way to, I don't know, sort of engage, with, because I was terrified of everything, and so horror became a way to engage with that fear in a safe setting without getting any bits snapped off. Um, 
And so I think for me, like horror pings so many different things, but I feel like the really, really common one is that I, I, I like feeling that little thrill of being afraid of something, but it's like, um, years and years ago, I went to Halloween Horror Nights with my partner, Christina, and, um, it was with a bunch of people and I, um, I love haunted houses. Like I go, I love going into the bits where a guy with a chainsaw jumps out and yells at you. It's a lot of fun for me. And Christina does not care for this experience. And so, uh, you know, she would sort of go and wait toward the exit for us. And after the first one, I kind of popped out and was like, hey, you know, like, are, are you okay? Like, you don't, you don't want to go in? And she's like, I don't want someone to yell at me in the dark. And that is the most reasonable thing I've ever heard. So not, not for everyone. I, I super identify with Christina. Um, the last horror movie that I watched other than Annihilation uh, earlier this week was like the skeleton key back in like 2006 or something and I didn't sleep for three days I have a very oh. active imagination mm -hmm. so I can't really deal with horror mm -hmm. and even like Annihilation gave me some creepy feelings a couple days later because I was like having to walk through a dark parking lot uh, outside my work at like 11 o'clock at night and I was like hey what if there was a bear what if the bear fucking killed me right now <laughs> That sure would be a, fe a feeling. <laughs> I am exactly the person who, um, I believe it was Hester on Twitter a while back posted about her heartbeat was so loud in her ears that she could feel it. And I just replied but saying, how do you know it's your heartbeat? Ah! So I just do this. <laughs> I just do this shit to other people all the time. Uh -huh. Like I just live in that always. So that's just kind of fun for me. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yep. here's the thing though. Like, I do enjoy writing creepy things sometimes. Mm -hmm. And there have been a couple times when I wrote something that gave me that sort of like, hey, what if there was a bear that killed me right now feeling, just like in the movie? And that's a lot of fun to realize mm -hmm. that, like, you did a thing. I mean, it's that's sort of how I feel about all my writing is that like if I succeed in giving someone an emotion at all, then that is a huge success. That's kind of the best success that you can hope for. And it's the best compliment that I could ever receive on my writing is this made me feel feelings. Well, and, and you bring up an interesting point, which I think, um, so romance and horror, I think, have a similar thing in common for me in that uh, if there's a genre that produces very physical bodily reactions, like a boner or revulsion or like your skin is crawling or you know sort of nausea or something like that you know just those classic things that bodies feel um i feel like necessarily it's looked upon as being sort of low rent or body or kind of you know gross and mm. with horror i mean if if somebody okay so if somebody writes horror and the audience has no physical response to it and just goes well yeah that was very scary i had a really good time reading that and being scared and they're able to just be completely cerebral about it without any sort of uh, I wanted to throw up and die. I wanted to move out into the woods and never speak to anyone again. Like, you can't, I, there has to be that, I think, visceral involvement, which I think also lends itself well to body horror because, you know, body, and a lot of, you know, body horror, the problem is it's like when you watch a home invasion, uh, horror movie and it's creepy to you because you're like, oh no, I live in a house. Um, body horror is necessarily <laughs> scary and creepy because you're like, shit, I got a body. What if my body got fucked up? And, so, yeah, I think that having a really physical response to it is really important. Well, I wonder, though, if that's maybe two different shades of horror, because I do think that both can be horror, or maybe one is a thriller, not so much as horror. But I, I love taxonomies, and I was thinking about this before, and I, I don't know as much as I want to about horror. It's something I'm sort of slowly getting into writing more and more. Mm -hmm. 
But I feel like there is that visceral bodily horror, and then there is the more cerebral, scary horror. Like there was this wonderful short story or novelette by Merck Rustad a while back, Mr. Try Again. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I love that story. And it's this really scary piece about a monster living in the swamp, stealing children, using other children to lure them out. But I wouldn't say it gave me bodily feelings, mm -hmm. but I still loved it and still felt horrified by it, just in a very, very different way than I did with the tentpole that we're going to talk about a little bit later, which absolutely gave me bodily feelings. <laughs> Holy fuck. <laughs> right. It's kind of the, yeah, it's it's whole thing. Um, I, Although you brought up an interesting thing with um psychological thriller versus horror, because I feel like now, and this mm. is just me being a sort of old horror crank. But I feel like a lot of people use psychological thriller to mean horror that I actually like. Like, especially with um, horror movies, Ooh. like with, you know, sort of Oscars, you know, you look at sort of like, wow, Silence of the Lambs won, you know, the Academy Award for Best Picture back in the early 90s. And it's like, well, but that's not a, a horror movie. That's a that's a psychological <laughs> thriller. And you're like, well, how is that not a horror movie? And you're like, because it's smart and I like it. So I, I feel like, I mean, genres are a bit squidgy with how we define things mm -hmm. yeah for example like as we were planning out this episode i started wondering about like all of the quote-unquote horror movies that i have seen and liked like the quote-unquote horror books that i have seen and liked mm -hmm. like the vampire chronicles it's got vampires they kill a bunch of people it's got some like kind of body horror shit in it is that horror uh, mm. Is the Adams Family horror? I mean, it uses a lot of horror tropes, but is it horror? I mean, I think this is why if we're talking about bodily, visceral, horrified reaction, maybe yeah. not, because that's not what those are for. Yeah. 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 Well, and of course, I mean, with so there's this other horror movie that I that honestly, I think both of you might really, really like, which is on Netflix right now called I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in This House. And Ooh. it um, it's like the best Shirley. Yes, it's like the best <laughs> Shirley Jackson novel that Shirley Jackson never wrote. And I feel like, again, that, that sounds like sort of the kind of horror that both of you might be more into is like atmospheric sort of tension building, not so much like, you know, parts spilling out everywhere and blood spurting. It's not so much like the, the gore that I object to. It's so the horror movie that I watched in 2006, which kept me up for three days, is about this young girl who goes to be a live-in aide to an elderly couple. And it turns out that they're body snatchers. And that for like 200 years, they have just been like trading bodies. And like they live in a body. And as that body gets old, they just switch to a new body. And they keep stealing bodies from people. And at the end of the film, spoilers, the old couple take over her body and like switch her soul into their old body and like paralyze it so that she can't like speak or tell anyone that something went wrong and there's some jump scares in there but it was more i'm trying to identify like what exactly it was that squicked me out so hard and it might be the body horror element of like oh god age is terrible or it might be like the jump scares and like there's some supernatural stuff in there and like not having control. That's mm -hmm. what it is. That's the core of it. Yeah. So the, the last mainstream horror movie that I watched was Get Out, which was amazing. Mm. Yep. Um, and I think for me, the fascinating thing, looking back on how I experienced that movie, the there's a large, I'd say like two thirds of the movie is this building ominous pressure. 
in which you know something's wrong and the character knows there's something wrong, but everyone's trying to soothe him and say, no, 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 it's all in your mind. And by the time you get to what you might look at as pulp horror, those aspects of it where they're cutting off the top of like someone's head to get at their brain, right. that's almost a release of tension because you're like, oh, yes, I'm vindicated. It really was that bad. Okay. Well, and, and this is, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And also, I, I think Get Out does the really great Hitchcock <laughs> thing of, you know, because Hitchcock had the bit about the bomb under the table that, you know, if the bomb just explodes out of nowhere and goes off, you get like maybe a few seconds mm -hmm. of uh, turmoil for the audience. If there's a bomb under the table and you tell the audience there is a bomb under this table and it will go off in one hour, that gives you an hour of sort of slow building tension as it gets closer to the thing. And I think Get Out especially, yes. like, it gives you... One of the things that I love so much about Get Out is the level of fridge horror with Get mm -hmm. Out that you watch the movie and in construction and execution, it's fucking incredible. But, like, so many bits of the movie sort of reveal themselves to you in the days after you watched it where, like... Yeah. This happened to me where I was taking a shower the next morning and then actually in the shower yelled like a mobster, oh, because I realized like, oh, fuck, when the father of the family says, when my parents died, we couldn't bear to let them go. He was talking about his parents and not the servant. So, um, anyways, I, I, I could, yeah, yeah, I really like it out. I was wondering, though, also, um, this makes me think about some of the differences between trying to convey that type of atmosphere and tension uh, differently in prose and in cinema. And I wonder if that brings us to one of our tent poles, Annihilation, which I think all of us have looked at in both forms. Mm -hmm. Yes. So how did you experience that? Because they changed it a lot, and I think they had to. They did, yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I agree with you that they absolutely had to, because like the thing that it was doing in the book, I don't think would have translated well to the screen. Personally, I think that I... Okay, going back to what I said about like having feelings, if the purpose of a piece of media is to make you feel a way, then the movie did a better job at making me feel a feeling than mm -hmm. the book did. The book mm -hmm. was sort of like confusing and there were times when I wasn't quite sure what was going on, but the movie was, for one thing, it was very pretty to look at. It's mm -hmm. a very, very pretty, pretty movie and I support the idea of more rainbow-colored horror. Yes! Yeah. Yes. And those gorgeous mutant flowers on that bush and somehow it's beautiful and horrifying simultaneously, even yeah. though you have no reason to think it's horrifying, but it is. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, I found myself wanting to keep looking at it just because it was like enjoyable to put in my eyes. Because a lot of it is just like dark and like grimy. And I'm not really into dark and grimy. <laughs> See, and, and, and this is kind of, um, I, except for Ryan. Well, of course, I mean, listen, I'm both uh, grimy and, co and colorful. So I, you know, both, yeah. both are possible. That's the, that's duality. Um, although yeah, I feel like, like with the book versus the movie, I think you're absolutely right. They had to change it up for this adaptation because the book is largely unadaptable. <laughs> I think if you're going mm -hmm. to do a, a straightforward, <laughs> yeah. um, A to B, just, you know, adaptation of it, um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I, I don't want to get caught in this binary of which is better, the book or the movie, because I think they do fundamentally different things. Um, but Agreed. I, but I feel like for me, like I'm, I'm kind of with Alex on this one. That like the movie gave me feelings in a way that I think the book was more like a brain puzzle to solve, where I was kind of like because no, yeah. nobody is named, and sort of I, I felt like in the book there weren't characters so much as like metaphors and 
like, mm-hmm. sort of figures that move the parts of the plot around. Because, mm-hmm. like, the plot sort of tells you, honestly, to me, the fact that in the book they don't even name the characters and it's just the biologists and, you know, the, the sort of their job title. It's almost like the, the narrative is telling you which things they're going to be moving around and what they're going to be doing with the plot, rather than... Mm-hmm. I want you to sink into this person's head and have an aside with them and, and really figure out what's driving them. Especially with um the, the biologist and, you know, her husband in the movie, where they suddenly add this motivation, I think, in the movie that wasn't even there in the book, necessarily. Yeah. I think for me, um, and it may be a personal preference thing, or it may also be that I read the book first. Mm-hmm. For me, I have... I found the book kind of unfolding in front of me in a way that engaged and made me complicit mm-hmm. in what was happening. Explain. Tell you, me like, more. Like, yeah, do, do you mean it, that it sort of um, made you an active participant, in, like a participant in the unfolding of the narrative? Right, because I felt like I had to figure out what was going on. I felt like I had to be far more engaged. And um, Alex has this thing about white space in in books and white yeah. space, uh, and you have to fill in. So. I was super conscious that the the biologist was very deliberately withholding information from me. And so I was kind of positing that there were characterizations, there were personal motivations, but she was deliberately censoring them. Are you saying she was perhaps an unreliable, an unreliable narrator? narrator. <laughs> Alex has like a slight fondness no. for unreliable narrators. It's, yeah. So does Macy. We've yeah. had a whole episode about them. Mm-hmm. There's so much fun. I like them. But I also love the, like, it, it's a very sparse epistolary book. And I think I really engaged with the puzzle of it. Yeah. And just this unfolding as things get worse and worse as the character realizes how much worse they're getting. You do too. Well, and the epistolary thing sort of made it feel like a bit of a throwback horror novel because Frankenstein and mm-hmm. Dracula were both epistolary. So it feels like it's sort mm-hmm. of part of this, like, horror pedigree of, like, sort of letters from hell sort of format. I would like to listen to the two of you, my darlings, geek out about nature-related horror things, because I know you both really like that. Mm. Go. I love them. I love them so much. I love just this whole concept of when you have a city that's being reclaimed by nature, that's something we're all very familiar, we see it day to day, Mm -hmm. but what about your body being reclaimed by nature? I think that's a thing that Annihilation Super does with the plants growing out from within your skin. And what would that feel like inside of you? Yeah, yeah, it makes you... Well, because I think we... uh, So we like to think that all of uh, humanity, like, we're sort of separated from the rest of nature. That Mm -hmm. it's like, well, look, we've got um, cars and buildings and, and all of these things that keep us from any of those things getting into our bodies. And honestly, any kind of nature centric horror, I love it because I feel like, okay, so also with body horror, I think the fear there is like the, like the structural integrity of your body being compromised and nature just being real scary and not really giving a fuck about humanity as a species that like we're, we're a host organism like anything else. Like we're, we're, (laughs) you know, sort of grist for the mill and in Annihilation, especially I love, now, and, and here's my thing is I feel like in, in the novel, especially, um, with characters that aren't named, I feel like it plays it very fast and loose with what happens to the bodies of the people in Annihilation. Like mm-hmm. their bodies become plot devices sort of necessarily in the way that, um, what happens to them is sort of just like a logical conclusion of what would happen to bodies under the circumstance. But. Mm-hmm. I really loved the part in the movie where the bodies become 
the the vines and the flowers and the shape of humans. Hell yeah. Oh my god. Oh, oh. Yeah. It was so good. Oh. But I did actually also want to tie this in to I know all of us watched or rewatched the second episode of Hannibal, which involves corpses being used to grow mushrooms. Hell yeah. Yeah. Oh, so good. Which and was amazing. That was really cool. No, yeah, just like the fact that the people were left alive while buried in the yes. woods and the mushrooms were growing on their bodies. Like, I think if they had been dead and mushrooms had been growing on their bodies, you've sort of made peace with the mushrooms at that point because you're like, well, they're fucking sure. dead. And then yeah. the, the fact that they were still alive was just like, oh, Jesus, like that, that that a sort of affectation of death is occurring while they are not yet dead and still completely conscious underground. It adds a whole nother level of gross. It's like... You know how gross athlete's foot is? It's sure. like that. It's like there's a fungus that's growing on you. It's like, it's growing on you. And, and it's growing on you. <laughs> it's like, and it's growing on you. On you. It, it is, on, it is you. on you and it is on growing. You, but it's in you and it's always in you and it's in you right now and you are full of fungus. Yeah, and this is, I mean, pregnancy is body horror, necessarily. Like, yes. I feel like, yeah, the mushrooms and the uh, annihilation turning into vines, like, it pings the same, it, it pings a similar sort of um, squick response as, like, pregnancy or the movie Alien. That Again, like, you're, the idea that your body, the sanctity of your body, like, it's not safe from the environment trying to... But I feel in. like I approach it and embrace it a little bit in my writing sometimes and I, I did, did this in the short the short story that I have where the family that the character finds at the end is herself being transformed and grown throughout with plants hell yeah Absolutely. right and I think that Hannibal actually engages throughout the whole show and Alex we're going to talk about some stuff that you maybe haven't watched yet with um nature and the symbiosis of man with body as meat Mm-hmm. And there's this whole thing, and even the very first episode where they are um, impaling humans on deer horns, but always just throughout the, the, the cannibalism and you are a creature like any other who is not owed any more dignity than an animal. Right. And this and this being sort of Hannibal's like raison d'etre for why he does what he does, that like it's he kills people to de- base them and basically that like you're no better than a pig this is you know sort of it's it's about sort of reducing people to you know the level of of you know an animal but also um as a side note here can i point out my favorite bit of trivia about nbc mm-hmm. Hannibal? yes it's okay so in season one there was the uh monster of the week who uh the angel maker who uh, flayed the skin yeah. off of people's backs and made wings out of the skin and um so apparently brian fuller had uh, sent some of, like, he'd, he'd gotten some notes back from the studio while they were making the episode, and the note that he got was, you can't show butt cracks on TV in the United States. And so Brian Fuller sort of jokingly sent back, like, what if I filled the butt cracks with blood? And they were like, that would be great. Like, <laughs> the studio was like, look, as long as you fill it with gore, we're, we can deal with that. We just can't deal with butt cracks on TV. Oh so that's gosh. sort of America.png for wow. the things we're comfortable putting on but TV. I, yeah, for reals. I want to pull it back a little bit. I know when we were prepping for this episode, we talked a bit, Ryan, about um, the difference between the monster within and the monster without. And mm-hmm. I think Hannibal deals with that conflict a lot through the character of Will, who is this, at the beginning, this hyper-empathetic detective who associates too closely 
with the murderers that he's trying to understand. And in mm-hmm. the fanfic tentpole we have, it's kind of pulling him in really deep with sympathizing with Hannibal himself. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the fanfic and how you felt that went as a oh, horror. Oh, absolutely. Piece. Well, so the fic, which, by the way, was really, really good. Um, it was, uh, what was the title? Where All Ladders yes. Start? Yeah. And I think, A, it was, it was a really, really good fic. Also, because I feel like, um, one thing that drives me crazy, and this is such a minor thing, it drives me crazy when somebody writing Hannibal fic has Hannibal referred to Will Graham as William, because at no point would Hannibal ever call him William. That's not, come on now. Come on now. I think Hannibal as a character, it's hard to approximate the kind of character Hannibal is for fanfic purposes, because necessarily, I think Hannibal works very hard to sort of make his emotional process and the way that his brain works kind of obscure and impossible to understand in some ways. Like, Will Graham, like, the fact that he is just this raw, exposed nerve of a guy who just, you know, he wears flannel and he's got, you know, he's constantly standing around in his underwear, covered in sweat, crying, you know, relatable. I think that's basically all of us. Yeah. Yeah, that's, Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then you've got Hannibal, who sort of, yeah, watching, I think that's why Hannibal is so fun to watch interacting with Will Graham, because, I mean, if we're going with visceral versus cerebral, it's sort mm. of like Hannibal is 100% cerebral, and Will Graham is almost 100% visceral, because Will has so much skin in the game. Like, he necessarily, there's wear and tear that everything takes on Will throughout the course of the series, because he can't help but be involved emotionally, and Hannibal... At several points during the series, you wonder if he's ever had a genuine emotion other than contempt in his life. Yeah, and that was kind of the thing that I started wondering about when I was reading the fanfic, because, like, he's in the show, or at least in the two episodes of the show that I watched, um, and in the fanfic, like, he's so unemotional Mm -hmm. and so unconnected to that part of himself. And so I was, like, reading this and wondering, like, okay, well, they're writing these two characters as being in some kind of love. Is Hannibal ever happy other than when he's, like, killing and eating people? And maybe he kills and eats people, like, to feel something because that's the only time that he does feel something. Maybe that, like, gets him connected to that visceral part of himself. Why do you think that so many horror things write the... this? serial killers or like the the villains as like the cold-blooded killers like why is that such a trope why why do we have to have them be so cold-blooded other than like they have to to kill 20 people right well i i feel like it's it's um it's sort of uh we're, we're comfortable with two extremes either they're um wild and out of control of their emotions and just sort of completely volatile and completely mercurial and, and sort of unpredictable or they are completely passionless and clinical and have all of the emotional range from A to B. And I think that in between that, I, oddly enough, this is going to sound very silly, a lot of early 80s slasher movies sort of fell between that, like the movie Maniac, where you've got um, a guy who, you know, is a serial killer, but also he's able to kind of function in society with people, but the other half of the time it's him muttering to mannequins in his apartment being a fucking goof. But then the rest of the time, it's like, no, I mean, you know, he could sort of hold a conversation with people and sort of be fine. So I feel like in horror, especially uh, having a character who's a totally cold eyed uh, sociopath, I feel like we're comfortable with that because, you know, 
this is why we like true crime. Is like, how the fuck does a brain do that? Like, mm -hmm. you read about a serial killer, and it's like, you wonder, how does a person's brain sort of go from a starting place of, I wonder if I should kill an entire family with a trowel, to actually doing that, and all of the steps along the way that make a brain do that. And I think that if somebody's completely clinical and cold and sterile and, and uninvolved, like a lot of people sort of write Hannibal as being, I think it's easier for a lot of people. But I will um, kind of argue with both of you more more with Ryan than Alex, because Alex hasn't really watched enough. But I would say that canon Hannibal is very Slytherin secondary, maybe, but like he has a ton of emotions. But he's mm -hmm. very, very good at not putting them forward, and he would never admit to it. He's kind of very, like, a cat that way. But, like, come the mm -hmm. fuck on. This is a guy who chooses his victims because they were rude to him. That is not yeah. someone oh, true. cold. True, true. That is not, that is someone who is hoity-toity and, like, up himself. And he has this huge amount of pride. He takes such smug joy anytime Will Graham does anything even remotely evil there's just this look this like very staid sort of mm, look and you can see him like dying like bouncing around inside going i did the thing i did the thing, I did the thing. <laughs> there's that and also anytime that he can make an obvious cannibalism joke at a dinner yes! party and have everybody laugh because he's I just sitting there going i'm fucking hilarious <laughs> It's so okay, this, okay, okay. This, this I shit. now want either of you two or possibly our dear listeners to send me a fic where Hannibal is just like a huge fucking dweeb and nobody really notices like how much of a goddamn nerd he it's... is. Like making these dad puns yes. at a dinner party. All the time. Yeah. And like there's, well, there's I mean... a thing in the fandom, there's this whole thing of like angle brackets, sad cannibal noises. <laughs> right, yeah, the, ba the Ballad of the Sad Cannibal. And I, I feel like it's also, uh, th this is honestly the main thing that I love about the dynamic between Will and Hannibal, is that they are both stupid babies. Because yes! you think of, like, yeah, yeah, like, they're, they're both the most, and they're both, like, especially, um, you think of Hannibal sort of at the end of season two, you could tell that, oh, although I don't want to spoil it for Alex if you haven't seen it. Um, yeah, totally but yeah. Go ahead. I yeah, no, yeah. Hannibal has the most feelings, but then also I think my favorite Will Graham is a stupid baby moment was in season one where Hannibal says, how does that make you feel during one bit? And then Will just immediately shoots back in a snooty voice. How does that make you feel? It's like, oh, somebody help me. <laughs> and I think that 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 is the piece that fandom engages with. And I know that you had some thoughts, Ryan, about how fanfic doesn't do horror but it, I think it, it engages with the fandom on that level, but then kind of a lot of fanfic, like I went looking, I went hella looking to find a fic that even remotely engaged with horror in Panable fanfic. And this was mm -hmm. the one that I found that was like edging towards the psychological side of things a little bit, but like in general, it doesn't. So what's about, what's that about? What's up with that? That's a, that's a great question, especially because I've noticed that in fanfiction, good horror movie fanfiction is very, very hard to find. Mm. Especially sort of it's, if it's for a sort of, um, you know, big kind of AAA horror thing like A Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th or Halloween or any of the sort of big, you know, slashers. And I think it's that, um, especially with Hannibal. All right, so the show Hannibal could have attracted exactly two kinds of fan bases, right? Like there's the first one where it would have been sort of People who look like me, basically, just sort of these cellar-dwelling hobgoblins who are sort of really into the gore aspect of it or really into the psychological manipulation aspect of it in, in like, a not particularly healthy way. 
um, a lot of true crime fandom is like that, or it could have been that, or the kind it did attract, which is, like, late 20s, highly educated, like, college graduate, like, women, who, you know, make AMVs, and, and, you know, sort of, uh, I, honestly, the fan base for Hannibal, I feel like Hannibal really lucked out to get the kind of fan base that it had, and I think that, especially with fan fiction, so much of the show is already brutal as fuck, Mm. and I think... You know, if you want to see 30 Ways to Fuck Up a Human Being, you can watch the episode where Amanda Plummer trepens a guy with a needle and puts a beehive in his head. You've you've got that. It's on film. But if you actually want to dig into, you know, the emotions that Will is feeling because somebody helped Will Graham. Yes. I, I feel like, you know, the show lends itself to fan fiction so much because so much of what makes the show effective is the emotional beats. Because, like, the cannibalism and the murder and the crazy horseshit that happens on Hannibal... It's almost sort of beside the point. The stuff yeah. that really fucks me up on Hannibal is the emotional abuse yes. of Will Graham. Oh, Jesus. That like, poor boy. Uh, honestly, like, like a, a way to just get me to cry on command is to say, please don't lie to me in the Will Graham voice. Like, it... Ugh. 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 The ugh, ending. Hannibal. The um, ending. The ending. Which I, I still haven't seen... I, I still haven't seen the ending Go of season on. three yet. You'll get there. Yeah, it's yeah, it's coming. Uh, shall we shall we yes. move on to the third tentpole, or did we have any other anything else to say? Yeah, All third right. tentpole. So, uh, Ryan, why don't you introduce this one since you were the one who picked it out? Oh, there we go. Um, so by the way, uh, both of you are uh, saints for uh, reading the tentpole that I suggested, which is Jacqueline S. Her Will and Testament by Clive Barker, who. I would say Clive you Barker. Love, you love Clive Barker. Oh, oh, I love Clive Barker so much. I have, you I have, have a, such a boner. I have Clive Barker tattoos. I, Clive Barker is, I think the, he's honestly one of the biggest things that got me into horror generally because of the stuff that Clive Barker focuses on, which especially in, uh, Jacqueline S. Will and Testament, this, okay. So this is horror technically, but I feel like, it's a bit of an oddball because it doesn't rely on a lot of the sort of usual horror beats for a horror I short story. I found it surprisingly affecting, like, the gore levels. Like, normally I'm not that bothered, but that was quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, um, for those of... I, so I, I, well, I just realized... We actually forgot to give introductions to any of our temples so far this episode. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah, it'll happen. Um, so, uh, uh, real quick, the logline of Jacqueline Astor Will and Testament is that there's a uh, lady named Jacqueline who realizes that she has the uh, psychokinetic power to manipulate other people's bodies using only her brain, and uh, sort of it's her misadventures with uh, <laughs> the various men in her life that have disappointed her, and uh, it's about the human experience, and it's about um, sort of being unfulfilled and being underestimated and other people trying to find somebody else who's on your level, and also gore. Lots of... A lot of gore. Jesus Christ. But I think it's also about her... Yeah. That there's a thing with monstrous women in horror that is always interesting to examine, uh, and them realizing their power and deciding to own it or deciding to shy away from it or not, and how does that character react to this sudden... It's almost always framed as a reversal. It's almost always framed in direct contrast to generally a man who is oppressing them in some way. And then suddenly they have a monstrous power. Mm. I'm thinking of, what's the Carrie, is it? Is that the one I'm thinking of, Stephen King? I guess that was Girls, the the one with the menstruation-linked power. I said. Oh, Carrie. 
Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I heard Harry. And was I like, also heard Harry. Harry. I'm sorry. I have a very silly <laughs> accent. It's no, no. It's good. It's fine. Harry was actually the uh, uh, sort of Stephen King B side. It was about her cousin. He doesn't have telekinesis, but he can sort of like move pencils, maybe a couple of inches at a time. Sure. It's not important. Um, yeah, no. Like Carrie, especially. Like I feel like uh, the ability to manipulate things with your mind. Like I think there's a reason that's such a classic horror thing, because it's the idea of being able to make what you want to happen just happen without really having to like make it happen mm-hmm. with your hands. Yeah, I found it very. The gore didn't particularly bother me. I did mm-hmm. find it kind of satisfying because there have been a lot of times in my life where I've looked at a man who is getting in my way, essentially, ah. and gone like, can't I just like squish you into like a pile of gore the size of a, of a suitcase? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and again, so much of Jacqueline S, like, it's sort of, you know, she meets, like, there's this uh, character in the thing called Titus Pettifer who's like, sort of, what? Elon Musk, basically, just like some dipshit rich guy. Yeah. And, Buffett, you know, he sort of exudes Warren Buffett. There we go. Yeah. And he just sort of exudes power. And the idea is that, like, Jacqueline is like, okay, so, you know, she's got the raw potential and the talent, but she doesn't necessarily know how to use it yet. And she's trying to find somebody else who understands power and understands how to wield it that can help her realize her own potential. And then she realizes, actually, he's a fuckboy and he's not helping yeah. anyone. <laughs> Mind you had this note in the doc about um, Stephen King and Clive Barker and King's version of horror contextualizes monsters as an invading force. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about that, because that looked fascinating. Oh, man. It's honestly... So I say this as somebody who is also a giant Stephen King fanboy, mostly because I um, once had a library card and was nine years old, so naturally I really like Stephen <laughs> King. Um, I So the, I, one of the big differences between Stephen King and Clive Barker, I think, is in the ethos of how they write monsters. Mm-hmm. Because And Clive Barker sort of took... Um, I, I could not, for the life of me, find this interview, and it was driving me crazy, because did you know that if you Google Stephen King, Clive Barker, you don't actually find that one specific interview from, like, 1988? But, you know, in the interview, somebody sort of asked him, you know, they, they, they compared him to Stephen King, because, well, you're both successful horror authors, so... That means you're contemporaries and there's, you have anything in common, right? And Clive Barker sort of took umbrage at being compared to Stephen King because he was like, well, you know, you read a thing like Salem's Lot and it's about this invading monstrous force that comes to your town. And, you know, it's the other, it's something scary from beyond the gates. It doesn't look like you and me. It, you know, sort of perverts the natural order of things. It moves into the laundromat down the street and, and turns all of your neighbors gay. And, you know, everybody, and, and, and sort of, he look the way that Stephen King writes a lot of stuff is that this evil force is something to be subdued. In Salem's mm-hmm. Lot, you've got Barlow, who is basically just Dracula, and it's on the townsfolk of Salem's Lot to drive him out or get rid of his influence or in any way stomp him out. And Clive Barker has such a completely different approach where it's like he's much more into actually the monster lives with us and we can't kick him out because we're all monsters. And so the monstrous is, like, especially in um, Books of Blood by Clive Barker, where Jacqueline asks her Will and Testament comes from, so so much of the monstrous stuff in that are about sort of, well, this, we can't excise the monstrous parts of who we are, and so we need to find out how we fit in with each other, how we, how we work that out in ourselves, like, like, what the stakes are for that. And I think Clive Barker is so into the idea of making peace with being a monster and figuring out how to have a life like that. I think for me this ties back to the point that we got to towards the end of the fairy tale episode 
Alex, if you remember it, um, about mm -hmm. tales for the community and how do you live as a community? And almost Great. back to Hope Punk as well, which is um, you have to face that there are bad things and bad things are real, but how do you embrace it and make progress and make progress and forgive yourself for being the horrible thing sometimes? How do you make that part of yourself and forgive one another and move forward? Yeah, or use the horrible parts in a constructive way that still furthers the good of the community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and to me, I feel like that tenderness is absolutely crucial in yes. horror i think because if it's all just a big chunk of death and it's just nothing but teeth and hair and nails and it's just all you know like if there's nothing tender to contrast that with it means nothing because there's not that tenderness to sort of provide a buffer because i don't know if there's nothing worth contrasting with it then it's it doesn't stick because right. there's nothing to make it stick it's just brutal that's what the worst kind of grimdark brings us is nothing to contrast it with oh everything's just shit <laughs> yeah like all right thanks for coming out folks yeah. like yeah like there's only awful. so many ways that you can scoop someone's eye out with a rusty spoon and believe me, I've tried. Like, yeah, I, there's only, you know, and, and this is the kind of, I think, Alex, like, you talking about how horror movies have a color palette of roughly the bottom of a theater seat. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, I, yeah, I, I sort of, I blame the movie Saw because, like, so horror goes in cycles. And I think when Saw got really, really popular in the mid-2000s, every single horror movie was like, oh, all right, uh, we need a really scungy-looking filter for every scene. Everything needs to be really gross. Everything needs to just look like it was rolled under the couch. Yeah. And I think it's just now starting to bounce back from that, where it's like, hmm, but here's the thing. What if color rules and things can be scary and also well-lit yes. and visible? Yes. And sometimes, yes. in the case of Hannibal, have lesbian sex scenes disguised as kaleidoscopes. What very are you referring to? There here? is a very, very strange season three. Hannibal gets weird cinematographically, but cinematographically. I see. <laughs> then, mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> we will find you images somewhere. It's very entertaining. Uh, but I think that that Annihilation does precisely that, right? As it brings back the beauty to horror and bits of Hannibal yeah. do as well. Yeah, oh, Hannibal I mean, still seems to have like a slightly more muted color palette, but it's not nearly as bad as many, many other images of horror movies that I have seen. Right, <laughs> right. Like you've you've seen screenshots from horror movies, and you don't, you don't care for that shit one bit. Oh man. <laughs> um. Although Hannibal, I mean, that's that's the thing with Hannibal. That so show beautiful. is fucking gorgeous. Like so. And it's like, you're watching this and you know that like, yeah, that's some people being chopped up, but also you're watching that like, very pretty. I don't know, man, I'm kind of hungry. Like, that looks really I think good. I made all of you watch my favorite ever fan vid of every, fan, of every fandom, which is a fan vid called Glitter and Gold, which is a Hannibal vid. It's only like yes. two minutes long. And uh -huh. the artist from that hypersaturated the red, which is, I think, something that horror does to start with. But in that context, it just pops. Mm -hmm. And it's this... And this was what made me think, actually, about the link between horror and sex. Because the things that it picks up, it picks up mm -hmm. precisely two things. It picks up blood, gore on everything, blood, blood, blood. And it picks up their lips and how close their lips are to one another. Mm. Yep. Yep. I mean, the, I feel like the English language is largely good at a couple of things. And one of those is describing vile sex acts and also threatening violence. Like, those are the two things English is really, really good at. <laughs> <laughs> I keep like looking at the clock and going like, oh, surely we're like way over time. We need to be like moving on. And it's just because Ryan talks so fast that we have like crammed like tons and tons of tons of stuff into this episode. Do we have any other uh, 
more things that we wanted to hit? Any other points? Did you want to talk about humor? Yeah, absolutely. So real quick, I, I think another thing that I think uh, Hannibal... Okay, so going back to the things that produce bodily reactions like, you know, romance and horror, I think comedy also... So much of comedy and horror go together in similar ways because of tension and resolution. Mm-hmm. And I think especially a show like Hannibal... I wasn't prepared because, all right, so uh, I read the Thomas Harris books when I was a kid and saw the movies and was like, oh, okay, that's pretty much, you know, whatever. And then years ago, they had announced like, yeah, we're going to be making a Hannibal Lecter TV show. And at the time, I remember being like, well, that's going to be a bucket of shit. And then I watched it and A, obviously it's fucking sublime, but then also I wasn't prepared for how funny that show is. Like, mm-hmm. you've got the sort of peanut gallery of the two, sorry, I... Uh, Macy, what are their names? I think of them as Statler and Waldorf. What are their names? Ah, I don't even remember. Those two. Yeah, yeah, but those there's two. Also, like, there's this beautiful scene that I couldn't find a gif of where, for various reasons, Hannibal is hanging from the ceiling in a pig farm, suspended in a straitjacket, and he's just kind of twisting there, and Will just walks off, and he's just twisting, he's just like, that's just where I am now. <laughs> Alrighty. <laughs> just suspended oh cannibal. And he looks so disgruntled. <laughs> oh my god! I see, and and this is um with the the humor on the show. Like I think the the one line I always think of is uh, after um you think Freddie Lowndes has been killed by uh, Will and Hannibal, and then Hannibal just they're they're preparing dinner, and he turns to Will and says, "You can slice the ginger." <laughs> and I actually did a spit take because I realized like I. I love trusting that this show absolutely knew, like, I, we're fucking hilarious. Like, and, and, and this is, so with horror and comedy, I think they go to, I mean, they've been hanging out since both horror and comedy have existed. Like, I mean, they, they go naturally together because of the sort of, you know, you you get out of a haunted house with your friends and you laugh because it's ridiculous that you've just been scared by some dude in overalls and a wheat hat yelling at you with a chainsaw. Because necessarily you want that moment of levity right after you've been scared because you don't want it to, again, like we were talking about earlier, if it's a giant chunk of murder and death and sadness and grimness, you don't really know what to do with that. But if it's, if, if you wrap it up together into a big fucking bacon roll of like sex and humor and horror, I think that magnifies all of those things and makes them bigger and makes them more useful narratively? I'm thinking of a TV show in the early thousands and it wasn't Pushing Daisies, it was a different one with uh, Reapers that was just a comedy TV show with Grim Reapers and the girl in it gets killed by a falling falling toilet. Do you you remember this show? Outstanding. I can't remember what it was. Oh God, but it was the darkest, darkest comedy, like darker than MASH and I watched a lot of MASH. Oh, I love MASH. But it was just these shitty-ass reapers who met in a coffee shop who got assigned people to go kill, and these gremlins would take away innocent people if they didn't kill the right ones. And it's just this horror concept, but it's so funny and terrible. Oh, my God. Yeah. I Honestly, okay, so Hannibal, I think... So going with going with the humor thing, I think some of the, the, the best moments on the show are the moments that give, give us insight into the characters that we get via humor. Because especially with Will Graham, so much of the humor of Will Graham is that he is perpetually a wet cat who would prefer not to. Like, everything that happens with Will, you're Mood. sort of... You're, Same. You feel in... Yeah, yeah, which so relatable. Like, you he feel indulgent of Will Graham. Yeah, you, you see him sort of, you know, going through all of these things, and it's... 
Yeah, I honestly, I think my favorite Will Graham moment uh, is in the script for the pilot episode uh, when he picks up Winston the dog on the side of the road and brings him back to the house and washes Winston off and brings him out to the other stray dogs. And he's like, everybody, this is Winston. And the pilot script actually describes it as like, Winston is not an isolated incident. Will Graham is a dog collector. Like, it's so, that's, that's so funny and so human and just immediately makes you like, I will follow Will Graham to the ends of the goddamn earth. Yep. Like, I am emotionally invested. I will invested. not follow him. I will protect him from others, but I do not trust him to lead me. Fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very His fair. judgment is not yeah. there. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh my god. Um, but yeah, so it's that's... Tough. yeah. And I think that's one of the things that good horror does is it gives you someone to root for, it gives you someone to relate to and to be with. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Agreed. And I mean, like, I think... So my favorite... Um, one of my favorite horror movies of all time is A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, which I'm assuming neither of you have seen? Nope. Nope? Okay. Um, but the great thing about it is, like, I think the thing that I love about that movie is, A, so Nightmare on Elm Street, you've got, you know, lovable ham Robert Englund as Freddy Krueger, which as the movies go on, he becomes sort of more of a kind of a Looney Tunes character. Like, he's, you know, sort of cracking off one-liners all the time, and he's sort of like a pop culture ghoul at a certain point. But num- number three is that perfect mix of, like, he's funny, but he's not basically shitting out a Garfield joke book every time he kills somebody, and it's contrasted in the movie with... These teenagers who are all in it together, and there's like a camaraderie in that movie that I don't think I've ever seen in any movie that I that works for me specifically. That like it's funny, and also every death in that movie matters. And when those kids die, you really, really feel it. But also, you've got that contrasted with um, Freddy Krueger tying a kid to a bed using detachable tongues, and then saying, "What's wrong, Joey? Feeling tongue-tied." Um, it's very bad. Fred Krueger's Freddy Krueger's all about the dad jokes, and unsurprisingly, he's my favorite movie monster. But Worst so dad. yeah, I, I yeah yeah so yeah horror and comedy. comedy. So I think we have to yeah. start wrapping up now. Any final final notes or anything? No, but I have an end quote if you like. Okay, I also before Please. before your end quote, yeah. I just want to like do a little bit of promo for Ryan. So uh, Macy made an excellent point about how horror gives us someone to be with, and I just wanted to thank you, Ryan, for being with us uh, today <laughs> on this episode. You really carried the episode. I think you had so many like smart things to say. Thank you so much. And uh, dear, no. stop making faces at me on video chat. Uh, and. And dear listener, that's a great face. That's a very good face, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of your nope. faces are very good. And dear listeners, if you uh, enjoyed this episode, if you are more of a horror person than I am, or if you just think that Ryan sounds like an extremely cute person, which they are, uh, you should go listen to Ryan's podcast, Rank and Vile, which we will put in the show notes. Oh, I guess this is a crossover episode, technically. Oh, yes. Hey, yes, yes. Off. And I guarantee you, darling listeners, you are more of a horror person than Alex. It's not difficult to be more of a horror person than I am. It's not difficult. But as we were saying, horror is all about don't go into the dark alone. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. Isn't Ryan just the best and the cutest and the smartest and the best? They're one of my most favorite people in the world and you can probably see why, or hear why, because this is a podcast. 
Speaking of podcasts, I really recommend once again that you go listen to Ryan's Rank and Vile because it's great. Horror is great, but it's not so much my particular jam. You know what is my jam, though? The exciting topic we're talking about in our next episode. Exciting on uh, multiple levels, if you know what I mean. That's because two weeks hence, on September 12th, we'll be discussing, you know, the beast with two backs, the horizontal tango. Sex. I'm talking about sex. If you want to prepare in advance, one of the tent poles for that episode is Kushiel's Dart by Jacqueline Carey. So if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, or who reads as much smutty fanfic as I do, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr, or join in the conversation on our fan Discord chat, linked on the About the Show page of our website. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to review us on iTunes. And, by the way, I love you and the shadowy figure who's been standing silently behind you this whole time. <laughs>